1: The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, the podcast network by and for Australia's climate community. I'm Eve. You might have heard me before. I was the host of Aftermath, and I'm currently the co-host of Serially Curious and the odd episode of Art Breaker. I'm here to introduce today's episode – which comes from a show from the wider community. This episode is from the Feminist Writers Festival and their new show, FWF Talks. In this episode, called Ecofeminism, Australian Green Senator Lydia Thorpe and novelist Alice Robinson chat with nature writer Inga Simpson about a feminism that centres itself around country. And next week, we're carrying on the climate and feminism topic, with an adaptation of a storytelling event by the Women's Climate Justice Collective. But now, please enjoy this FWF Talks episode and find the links to more of their work in the show notes.
0: Hi, my name's Nikki Anderson and I'm director of the Feminist Writers Festival. Welcome to FWF Talks, created for FWF 2020 with the support of the Beeson Family Foundation. Check out the whole FWF 2020 program at feministwritersfestival.com. Our think ins cover the big topics of the day our culture of violence, inequities in our legal and health systems, and how to stay bold as a feminist and activist. They're virtual events supported by essays to get you thinking about the topics ahead of the festival day on Saturday, the 14th of November back to fwf talks in this episode ecofeminism green senator lydia thorpe and novelist alice robinson chat with nature writer inga simpson about a feminism that centers itself around country
2: we
3: all owe a lot to the women who paved the way before us Um, And I think a lot at the moment about Rachel Carson, who took on the big chemical companies and even though she was dying of cancer and and basically spent her last breath uh, on that fight. And Carson was labelled an hysterical woman for suggesting that pumping toxic chemicals into the air um, and the soil and ultimately the ocean, you know, was going to have some pretty dire consequences. Um, it was hard, even though she was a, a scientist and a, and a wonderful writer, um, she was still given that label of hysterical so here we are with all those consequences of of those chemicals into the environment. Has anything changed for women advocating for change today? you know is it any easier? you know what can you tell us about your experience of writing for change leading for
2: change uh, I'm happy to to hit it off uh, no nothing's changed it's still a struggle uh, and you know we we continue to fight for a seat at the table uh, and you know when we do raise any issues that our community uh or or that we care about um then you know the labels come at you uh and they're usually negative labels like you know, troublemaker, wrecker, uh and, you know, angry black woman. Uh so it's it's still a struggle and it's part of the fight for um our our voice to be heard. Uh but, you know, just as you say that, you know, so so many other uh staunch women before us have have fought for that that space, just as as my um of matriarchs in my family. So you kind of well for me I, I've come accustomed to it that this is part of our struggle uh, and that we don't do it easy. Uh, and that um, regardless of, of people trying to put us down or take us down, uh, that we have to maintain that strength and that fight. Um, because at the end of the day it's it's about caring for our, our people, our community and our planet. So it's, yeah, it's, it's still a struggle. I mean, as a black woman, we still have to deal with the struggles of deaths in custody, removal of children uh, and incarceration rates and seeing the destruction of our country is just as devastating as, as losing a community member. It's, we don't separate ourselves from the land or the water. So um, the struggle's real and we've got to stick together and, you know, build this, this movement uh, together because I think as women, uh, we are best placed to um, know what's best for our family and what's best for our community. It's the women that are leading it.
4: It's such a galvanising issue, isn't it, for women? Because as you're saying, Lydia, like traditionally women well, their purview has been the home and their family or their community. And that's where women are sort of situated. And and so climate change is an issue that's affecting all of those things so profoundly. I see it as an issue about the way that we're living or our lifestyles and the way in which that's impacting on the environment and how we can change the way that we're living to protect the environment, which is really about what's going on in the home. So communities and in that sense I think it's no accident that women are often at the front lines of those fights. But I was also thinking as you were talking about this question of whether things have changed, and I feel like there's something, you you know, the internet gets a terrible rap for being a toxic place, for being problematic in all kinds of ways. But it's also maybe one of the developments that has allowed for women's voices to be so powerful I'm thinking of Greta Thunberg, of course, and other activists like her who've been able to amplify their voices in a way that might otherwise not have been possible because of the internet.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, what I've seen in the last couple of years is that with people who are struggling to put food on the table or, um, you know, just, just struggling to fight the fight, uh, they all have Facebook uh, and so our community are on Facebook now and we're more connected than ever through these social media platforms. So the movement is building via social media, which is a, yeah it's fantastic.
3: Ecofeminism made the link between um, exploitation of women and exploitation of the environment. and I think today we understand that more broadly to the link between inequality and um, climate change you know how we got to where we are. Uh, and in the Australian context, I mean, I think Judith Wright said back in the 50s, made the link between um, violence towards our first people, you know, colon- colonization, and violence towards the land. You know, and, and she suggested that until we have some sort of reconciliation, that nothing much is going to change in this
2: country. Fast forward 70 years, um, has anything changed? Well, for us, it's over 240 years uh, and to, you know, to see the destruction um, and how uh, policies and and decisions are made in in parliaments, particularly, that continue to oppress Aboriginal people and take away our rights to self-determine our own destiny. Is part of this uh, ecological breakdown uh, because native title, for example, you know that that's destroyed our people. It's 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 divided our people, uh, and you only have small groups of people making decisions around the destruction of land, and it's usually the women that are at the forefront. Um, you know, questioning our own people's decisions on um, consent to destroy. You know, I don't think much has changed. I think it's got worse. Uh, Where we don't have a say over our land, uh, and that those policies keep us divided and, and keep us separated. So the last thing the government want is for uh, a unified a, a unified Aboriginal nation, because we would have a greater voice. Uh, and that's, that's what I want to achieve. And I think you talk about reconciliation, I think that we need to go a step further and talk about a treaty and talk about how a treaty can bring peace to this, this country, this, this, the people in this country and the land and waters of this country.
3: Do you think there's a discomfort for non-Indigenous Australians about our landscapes, about um, this country that we live in and on, because of this history, do you think that's one of the reasons we're just still treating it like some kind of colonial outpost? You know that we're not responsible for.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think uh, you know the the denial of education in our in our education system haven't told the true history of of this land and people are confronted by that. Uh, People are in denial and people don't think that they're responsible and they may not be uh, personally responsible, but if they look back in in their um, family history, I'm sure that there's been some stolen wealth along the lines. Uh, And, you know, if we look at my country, for example, so now we just have seven clans left. Uh, So, you know, we need to face up to our history. It's all of our history. Uh, No, we may not have been personally responsible, but we have a responsibility to um, unite this nation in a way where people have a better understanding of of what's happened and how we can uh, come together and, you know, be able to celebrate something together in this country. There's nothing that brings us together. And I think uh, a treaty is a mechanism to be able to do that, have those hard conversations. We're at a point now in this country that um, I think people are ready for some harder conversations.
4: One of the things I've written about in the past and thought a lot about, and I think it's a problematic assertion in lots of ways, and it's certainly not a unique idea to me, but it's very interesting to me, is whether climate change actually poses for the first time a united front, it's a problem that's going to affect everyone globally and everyone in Australia, and I wonder whether it offers for the first time a kind of conduit for the kinds of conversations and, you know, progression that you're talking about, Lydia, in terms of reconciliation and treaty. You know, it's a catastrophe that we're all facing, and I think the reason that it's very problematic or sort of damaging or complex to say, after 200 years of invasion and colonisation and what we, you know, settler Australians have done to the land and now we're going to look to Indigenous communities to help us fix the problem. But if that gets everyone at the table to change our culture or uh, change the way we're relating to place and to protect it moving forward, I think it's worth it. I don't know. What do you make of that, Lydia?
2: I think it's imperative that, um, you know, truth-telling is not just something that that people um, should be afraid of, it's something that people should embrace because truth-telling is also sharing stories of how we've maintained and sustained these lands for thousands and thousands of generations. Um, But, you know, the climate space is very white very privileged. They come from a very privileged position. Uh, and I, I think that the climate space needs to um, decolonise and uh, move over and allow for First Nations voices to be at the table leading a lot of these campaigns. And, you know, I'm not seeing much action around it. Um, you know, there's still very white run campaigns uh, and so they, it, it, that automatically creates this kind of us and them when when campaigns are being run on country without the proper protocol and consent uh, if, if we 're not part of the campaign or part of the, the conversation around what 's going to happen, then we 'll disengage from that conversation and so it's a real you know it 's time for the climate and environment movements to have a good hard look at themselves and ask themselves. Do we have consent to run a campaign on that country?
3: Lydia, Alice and I both as writers um, are writing into this space, you know, in the the way that you are talking about too. And I know, um, Alice, your PhD thesis looked at um, the issues of the obligations for non-Indigenous writers writing about place or writing about environment. Did you want to talk a bit about that?
4: My thesis looked at how settler Australians relate to the land and what that might mean for climate change moving forward. And the position I arrived at was that it's very similar to what you're saying, Lydia, that unless we address what's happening, well, what's happened historically with the treaty, unless there's some you know, meaningful movement in that space, some kind of reconciliation that's really meaningful and probably legal and all those things, then we're just going to keep having settler Australians, having this really unsettled relationship to place. I think in my, for example, in my personal history, you know, my dad's lived in the same bit of land for three generations, which is the longest of anyone that I know um, to have lived in one place. And that's nothing that's where it's sitting in the settler Australian relationships to place. It, 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 he's very attached, but of course, that's just a little surface relationship compared to the historic relationships that are there and the ongoing relationships as well. And I I think when you're trying to write about all of that, that comes out in the writing, even if you're not trying to address that directly, if you're just trying to describe the landscape or the places that are in the narrative that you're trying to tell. And you can see in Australia, Settler Australian writing about place, you can see this kind of attachment and ambivalence about that attachment or fear about those places that is also mixed with a longing and a kind of adoration. Oh, yes, this belonging and longing and fear. And all of this is implicated in the way that we're telling stories about place, the places where we live. We're trying to belong. And I think that's really problematic for a culture and for a nation. And I can see those relationships in the way that we're treating our places.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds like we've covered some similar ground. I looked at the history of Australian nature writing and, you know, saw that same discomfort um, from the outset. You know, this growing attachment to place, to the land, and, and wanting to care for it, um, and particularly the women writers. You know, Louisa the mid-1800s, um, called white Australians invaders. Like, she used those terms in her newspaper column, invaders, um, which was pretty radical. But overall, there's just this discomfort um, with that attachment and it seems to be getting in the way, you know, and uh, as you say, a longing to belong, but then there's the distance um, and, and the overall feeling that, you know, we don't. Um, so, yeah, that that was very evident in the history of Australian nature writing as well. And I teach nature writing a lot now and I'm always having to, to say to a whole class, you know, if you're going to write about place in this country, you have to acknowledge, you know, the whole history of that place, you know, how you came to be there and what has gone on in that place. But you can sense it, you know, still today, there's a, a discomfort with going there. So often there's just a dreadful silence,
4: you know. We don't also know the stories that predate the stories we're trying to tell about those places. You know, maybe we shouldn't know them, but it's there's this kind of sense that these places are imbued with history and and story and meaning and we're just skating along the surface trying desperately to kind of engage or or not just use those places in ways that, you know, we can see the outcome of, of in the environment. Yeah
3: lydia do you have a um a view for um uh, people who are trying to non-indigenous australians who are trying to write about place and want to acknowledge traditional custodianship and and the, you know the history of that place um at the particular protocols that writers can um should be following or um a place they can go for for advice on how to do that if they are you know, uncomfortable in the way that we're talking about.
2: Well, I think it's about um, you know reaching out to um, those people who are the custodians of that particular place, uh, and and doing it in a you know respectful way where it's not onerous on on those people because you know we're very few and far between. We're three percent, and we're struggling to survive. So, you know, I see the climate. Um, catastrophe that we're facing as also um, um, in line with the catastrophe that we're facing as first people in this, in this country, Uh, you know, because we're sick and dying, we're incarcerated and our land is sick and dying and and being, it's in, you know, it's a form of incarceration of what's going on um, with our species. And so I um, often say that, you know, if the worse that climate change gets, the worse our health and well-being gets. So if that goes, well, we're dead. So if you can't keep us alive, then you're not going to keep the land and water alive. So, you know, we don't separate that. Um, but there's also some good examples. And I was thinking while you were talking about, when I set up the blockade in Now and hour in East Gippsland on my country, Gunai country, uh, against Duke Energy, which was the Eastern Gas pipeline that they were putting through from Longford to Sydney. And, you know, I was on the Now and hour development group, just a little community group in Now and Now with a local GP, and I was the only black follower on there, of course. And when we heard about the pipeline coming through, you know, I was in this white space and it, and people were concerned. But then I went out to my elders at Lake Tyres and said, "What? I need to know what the um, story is of the Now and Our Gorge because it's, you know, it's million-year-old rock. Uh, I heard that there was rare calistamons in there. But I needed to hear what the significance, cultural significance it had for our people. And, you know, the elder who talked me through this is now past, and she she only ever told me that story and the the head of Duke Energy came to me and he said I need to know what the story is of that gorge Lydia why don't you tell me and I said it's not for me to tell you it's my elders my elders have to tell you that I can't give you that information and he said oh elders elders and he was very disrespectful um He ended up getting quite sick and having to go back to America. Uh, And it's the only bend in the pipe from Longford to Sydney because we weren't allowing, um, you know, explosives to go through this million-year-old rock and destroy the significance. But it was a whole community that came together. Like I set up a little campfire and we had non-Aboriginal elders come sit around bringing warm freshly cooked cakes and coffee and it was just a beautiful moment of a whole community coming together and and for different reasons right so the white fellas of the town had their reasons and the black fellas the traditional owners had their reasons but we connected for all of those reasons and we won so I think taking the time and it does take time to connect because we've got to build trust with people and that's what we did in that example and I think that's what we need to continue to do It's just sit down have a yarn take the time to understand uh, and learn and we can win we can win Jabalooka is another example you know there's excellent examples around this country where black and white um, people have come together shared the story of uh, why they care about the area and we've won as a result. And, they've, and governments have also kept the environment and climate groups away from traditional owners. And we need to, we need to connect the, the movements together.
3: Yeah, great. Um, and that's, you know, that was a great example of what um, can be achieved well, Lydia, would you talk about the sacred red gums um another campaign that you've been involved in was that was there similar community involvement there, or was it
2: very much because it's a sacred women's space was that a sort of a women's fight um, it was women led women led particularly by our matriarchs, the Japarung matriarchs uh, so they were the decision makers and and you know we had to seek permission from them to to campaign and, and do what we did uh, on Japarung country. But everyone was welcome. And I think why that was so successful was pretty much what story I just gave you. You know, people came and sat around the fire and had a cup of tea and yeah, it took days, weeks for those yarns to happen, but people just, Connected in a way that they hadn't connected before i'm I'm talking about you know non aboriginal people because they were able to have those yarns and learn more deeply about the area um, so yeah uh where we're at i mean we're still fighting that my mum's on the um, on the court case as a signature, and she's fighting it every day so uh you know they're, they're going they want to build that road um in the middle of talking about a treaty the victorian government wants a treaty with us but they want to destroy our our 800 year old birthing trees and they want to frack the country and they want to continue to log um that's not a treaty can i just say that is not a treaty
3: feminism has a different has a different look for all of us Maybe today you know, activism too for the environment, probably different for different people. Alice, you've written a bit about, um, you know, the impact of being a parent at this time, you know, facing, um, you know, climatic disaster. You know, you've written these apocalyptic novels and now we're kind of living one. Um, Can you talk a bit about, yeah, your views on being a parent at this time and how that's informed your activism? It's another...
4: Point of unsettlement, you know, different things flowing into the same place from different directions or different feelings, different ideas. And what I mean by that is that I had children after already being pretty engaged in the climate space. But it was like, even though I knew that those things were true about what was probably going to happen in the future, and that there was no doubt in my mind that it was actual, I also chose to have children, which, you know, The two decisions seem kind of counterintuitive, and yet they sit alongside one another. And often because of the nature of my work, I've been asked to explain that decision or to unpack it. And I feel that on some level, I can't really, like one of them is a decision of the head and the other one's a decision of the heart. But also having the children is such a profoundly hopeful thing to do. It sort of goes against rational thought. But you're left with this kind of sense of, of sending the people that you love most into a future that you fear will be disastrous. And yet it also, by having them, gets you in the game in a pretty serious way because, of course, I don't want my children to suffer. I don't want anyone's children to suffer. And I don't think there's any accident that when you go to these big marches in Melbourne where I live for the climate, you know, it's just packed with people with prams. So there's something very galvanizing, especially for mothers, potentially about having a child, having some flesh in the game in a serious way about what's going to happen next. So, yeah, I'm interested in that conundrum and I'm interested in talking to people for whom having children has been taken off the table because they're fearful about what's going to happen next. And I'm interested in people who make the opposite choice as well like I did And the interesting thing to me about this moment in history when we're having this conversation is that the kind of precursor disaster, if you like, of this pandemic has been really soothing and kind of comforting to me in the sense that, you know, the entire society hasn't collapsed. A big, profound thing has happened. And whether or not we agree with the kinds of mandates, government mandates around keeping people safe and things we're still here and perhaps there are going to be some positive outcomes in the way you were just just describing about the perspective that it's given some parts of our community and, and certainly me on the way that we were living. I said to a friend at the start of the year, I'm just so busy, I often feel like I can't breathe. And I said that in a very casual way, like, you know, we were just catching up and That's not an okay way to be living, but it was so normalised to me and it took a global pandemic to make me think, you know, maybe there's another way.
3: Yeah. Well, the way we were living was unsustainable on so many levels, right? Um,
4: Yeah, there's hopes and lessons I
3: learned from that.
2: You know, I suppose it's different for Aboriginal people um, in that, you know, we're born into injustice, we're born into struggle uh, and our, we've always had to fight, right? We've had to fight to keep our children safe and we've had to fight racism. We've had to fight the oppression. Um, so that's not anything new to us having to fight, you know, this climate injustice that's going on. Uh, and it's, you know, it's new for a lot of people in this country to band together and fight for climate justice, but we've been fighting for black justice for 240 years and it's like, like where's everyone been, you know? Um, so I, I just think that uh, it's something that I'd like people to consider is that we've been fighting a bloody long time uh, and if we had have had justice, 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, then maybe we wouldn't be in this climate crisis in this country because we we would have had more say over our land uh, and we would have been able to um, protect it and preserve it for all of our generations into the future. So I think, um, you know, our first struggle is to survive as as first people. uh, And then we talk about climate because Um, we've got to survive to be able to fight the climate. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Can I ask um, each of you for something that you feel positive about going forward? I mean, it's easy to get overwhelmed at the moment, right? Um, How do you keep going, each of you?
4: I feel really hopeful. Maybe this is also a bit problematic, but I feel quite hopeful about the extent to which young people are really picking up this fight. I know that they feel that there's an injustice in that also, that previous generations haven't done anything and now are really congratulatory that they are doing something, but that just gives me a lot of hope. And even just thinking about this conversation today has been really galvanizing and exciting. You know, that these things are being talked about and taken seriously. And I think there's a lot to be really hopeful about, or at least I find it meaningful to think so.
2: Um, I'm, I have to be hopeful. Otherwise, what do we do? We lay down and die and give up. Um, that's not in my blood. Uh, and I believe, uh, and this might seem a bit crazy for, for, for people who, you know, um, aren't first people, but uh, I believe our ancestors are in control here. Uh, and, and when you, when we have extreme weather events, you know, we see the land as our mother, we see the earth as our mother. And when we have those events, you know, I, I feel the pain of my mother. I feel that she's angry and that she's crying for help. Um, and so I'm guided by my ancestors. I don't know how the hell I ended up a Senator in the federal parliament. I believe that the ancestors made that happen. Uh, they made it happen in Victoria whilst there was a treaty conversation going on. Um, and I think they were part of me not being successful in that state election so that I had this opportunity to go a bit higher uh, at the most crucial time in our in our history in this country. So I'm hopeful. I'm also hopeful about our young people having a stronger voice. Uh, and I'm hopeful about... Um, bringing this nation together like it's never been before. And so I think that our future is bright, um, that we're going to feel some pain, that we're going to hurt. Um, But I think how else do people wake up and learn that this is bloody serious? Uh, I think when they feel that pain and that hurt that we've felt for, for 240 years, that people will wake up. And I'm seeing that now. Um, So I'm hopeful, I I think, that we'll have a a brand new nation where we can have a flag that we agree on, that we have an anthem that we can agree on, that we have a day of celebration that we can agree on. And that from, um, you know, successfully getting to those points in our our life uh, and in our nation, that climate justice will happen as a result of that. Also, because it'll be part of the conversation around truth telling. Wow. (laughs) Thank you so
3: much for your strength and optimism and the vision. Just hearing such a, a beautifully verbalized and empowered vision for this country gives me a lot of heart. So, thank you.
4: Thank you. I was just going to say that I'm so excited to see what happens next. Lydia, I'm so glad you're in the position that you're in. It's really exciting.
2: Well, I was on a private jet last night, um, which was weird. Here I am with my Black Lives Matter mask and, you know, real cash. And Josh Frydenberg comes along and we had a great yarn. And it was just him and I as the politicians on this private jet. Um, And he was really lovely. So I uh, want to talk to people who don't agree with me. I want to have these yarns with Pauline Hanson. I want to have these yarns with as many politicians as I can. You know, there's ways that we can connect where people don't even realise that we have things in common.
3: (laughs) I love it. You've got a great attitude. It's great. We're in good hands, Senator. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our thanks to the speakers and chair our podcast partner, Listen Up Podcasting, and the Beeson Family Foundation for vital funding support. We acknowledge that this recording took place across Australia on First Nations lands, lands whose sovereignty has never been ceded. For more FWF goodness, visit our website, feministwritersfestival.com, and find us on socials. Thank you for joining us.
1: You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people of the Climactic Collective and all the shows on the network at climactic.com.au. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these Climactic times.
0: The Climactic Collective.